This is Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe. Now, here's Patrick McEnroe. All right, another edition of Holding Court. I'm very happy to welcome in a guy who basically started his own industry, the own in, his own industry of sports memorabilia back in the day. Uh, he continues to reinvent himself to this day, even uh, during this global pandemic. He's a buddy of mine. His name is Brandon Steiner. You know him from uh, Steiner Sports Memorabilia. He started that years ago, and he continues to uh, come up with new stuff. So what do you got for us now, Brandon? Well, first of all, at 60, I just started two new agencies, left Steiner Sports and opened up Collectible Exchange, which right. is kind of a new version of eBay. Uh-huh. And then still have the Steiner Agency, which is uh, you know the athlete procurement, still marketing a lot of athletes, which is really the first company I started back in 87. So Collectible Exchange, I don't recommend starting a new company at 60. It's a lot of work, <laughs> but it's really going to be really fun for fans to be able to sell and buy different memorabilia. And it's really just a better version of eBay, which is a lot safer, more authentication, processes, and different things like that. So it's been exciting. It hasn't been dull for me this year. And even during this break, I've been really, really busy just you know, getting the site up and running properly and doing all the little things. So like you have to do with a brand company. Well, when you started uh, your your initial memorabilia company, as you said, you started off sort of in, in marketing and working with athletes. You'd, you, you you left Syracuse University. You went to New York where you, I know you grew up in Brooklyn uh, as a young kid without a whole lot. Um, and you, you come to New York. I know you worked in a couple of uh, sort of sports bars and in, some, in the hotel world. What prompted you to say, you know, I want to get out and do my own thing? Well, failure. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, you know, the reality of it is, is um, even when I went to Syracuse, like my friends in Brooklyn, you know, when you grow up in Brooklyn, nobody leaves Brooklyn. Like, where, where are you going? Why would you go up to Syracuse? <laughs> right. Bunch of bumpkins up there. Like, I said, not only am I going, I'm not coming back. Right. But uh, I was always a little bit of a serial entrepreneur trying new things. And, you know, the reality was, is, you know, I had opened up the Hard Rock Cafe on 57th Street, and anybody who has a little bit older knows it's probably one of the most successful restaurant openings in the history of mm-hmm. restaurants. Yep. And I got a lucky break after leaving Hyatt to become the assistant GM and run the place at night, and I met a lot of athletes and a lot of people because I think there were about 250 people online from 2 in the afternoon to 2 in the morning, seven days a week. Wow, and at that and time... And was a 250-seat restaurant. Right, and at that time you were what, like mid-20s? Little older. 23 years old. Wow. Okay. And, you know, and, you know, it's funny is they sent me to, they sent me to Hard Rock in London for training and it was Wimbledon time. And I remember they had this mm. annual party. At I was going to, I was going to bring London. that up when you mentioned the, the one in New York. Exactly. It used to be a huge event in huge London. Huge event that yeah. uh, Venus used to throw. Yep. And uh, that was like my first intro to tennis. I'm like, wow. Two things I really noted at that party. Like, you guys were really tight. Because, mm-hmm. you know, you, know, you see you guys competing and growling at each other. And yet, in this party, like, I guess you guys travel together, and there's some, a lot of relationships. And here you got here, like, everybody and anybody's there, except for Connors, by the way. <laughs> he was always um, a lone wolf. That's what made him great. So it kind of was like, yeah. it was like, wow, this is cool. Because, you know, Peter Morton was a big tennis guy, mm-hmm. and the uh, other owner, Isaac Tiger, was a big rock and roller. So I'm at the Hard Rock, and I'm thinking, sports. Like, we should do a Hard Rock, but in sports. Mm-hmm. And back in 1984, I opened up the Sporting Club, which was with one of the limited partners of the Yankees, Billy Rose. Mm-hmm. And there were no sports bars, no cable, no satellite dish in Manhattan. It was the only one. And that's how I met all the athletes. So my vision after that was I wanted to open up like an ESPN zone at that time, and just before ESPN zones and, and uh, All-Star Cafe and that. 
and believe it or not, I was just too young. I mean, I really mm-hmm. hit my mark with this sports idea, but I think I was able to raise $250,000 and I, I, I kind of needed a million and I just couldn't do it. So at the time I had met a bunch of athletes. I was very friendly with uh, Keith Hernandez and Strawberry and a bunch of different guys. And I started doing their fan mail. I did Lawrence Taylor's fan mail and mm-hmm. a bunch of guys. And I was just helping them get, you know, some little appearances and stuff. I mean, right. there wasn't a lot of sports marketing going on back then. And, uh, you know, one day I went home and I just got married. I said, you know, I think I'm going to start a company. And my wife's like, yeah, but you didn't have enough money for that restaurant you want to open. I said, you know, I think I'm going to open up a little bit of like a rest sports bar, sports kind of consulting agency. Mm-hmm. And my wife, as she usually did, gave me that look like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> what are you getting us into? Right. Like, but if you're going to do something stupid, you might as well do it now, like before we have a family. And right. my wife was a CPA and she, she did well. So she kind of carried us. And, you know, it was really interesting. And when you start a business with 4000 bucks, I don't recommend it. <laughs> but when I started signing, I only had $4,000. And then when I started the collectible business, I had 10. I remember going to the bank and taking out $10,000, which was a big part of my savings. I felt like I had a hunch. And it was really just to do corporate collectibles. So, you know, if you had a meeting, you know, you send the ball, I want to get the ball rolling. Um, you know, I want to serve you. You send a racket, I'm here to serve you. Mm-hmm. You know, I would send like, you know, right, right, right. Wanted, you, know, you connect, you connect it to the sport. Right. Yeah, I'd send a guy a favorite pair of sneakers. Except I'd only send the left one. I said, Look, <laughs> I want to get the relationship off on the right foot. Right, oh, that's great. And I called yeah. my secretary. I find out he's a big tennis fan or right. a big runner, and I'd get the best pair of sneakers. Send them the left one. I said, look, I want to get this relationship off on the right foot, and I'm going to be in your neighborhood next week. I'd like to bring the right sneaker every time it works. Wow, that's amazing. So I was always creative and trying to develop these relationships because, remember, nobody from a regular standpoint was used to using athletes. They mm-hmm. weren't used to, so I was just trying to set them up with all kinds of different things. Well, you say in, uh, in your, your many speeches you've given and on your podcast, which I've caught up on this week, which are tremendous, by the way, that it's all, it's all about relationships. That's kind of your big theme. And obviously, you, you, you figured that <clears throat> excuse me out early in your relationship with the athletes to connecting them with the companies. But you reminded me of something about, because as soon as you started talking about the Hard Rock in New York, I, I, my mind immediately went to the one in London, which was as popular. And I remember, uh-huh. as I'm losing my... Yeah. My voice here doing these podcasts losing my voice because they I got up and sang ACDC at the player party and of course I can't sing at all but uh, you're <laughs> right the, the tennis group is uh, pretty close-knit in that you know we travel around yep. the world together you obviously compete with each other but you're there um, with the same people basically week in and week out so when you when you look at tennis I mean you come from the entire sports world so I'm you know many of us in the tennis world it's kind of too locked into what goes on in our little universe. But from someone like you who's had amazing relationships with the New York Yankees, with the Dallas Cowboys, with Notre Dame, and their memorabilia over the years, when you look at tennis and sort of the global nature of tennis, particularly when you look at what's happening now and you know how sports, if ever, it's certainly in the professional realm, will come back, what do you see that tennis could do better? Well, a lot. Um, a lot. I mean, first of all, you know, Serena has been amazing for tennis. Um, the fact that, you know, your brother sticks in on these broadcasts with you as well has been very helpful because I'm a big fan. You know, one of my big things in really, in, in really building the collectible business from a hobby into a real industry was remember the moment. Mm-hmm. So I think it's just critical to go get back the legends and put that in some kind of order. I think people generally don't understand the order of some of the greats that have come before. Mm-hmm. And to really, you know, 
really memorize them in a much bigger way than just Arthur Ashe, let's say, or just Billy Jean. Or Billy Jean, right. It needs to go right. much wider and mm -hmm. further. Mm -hmm. So, to give you an example, when you go into a sports licensing store, you never see any, you never see anything. Like, you know, unless you're going to go buy apparel for to play in, mm -hmm. you never rarely see. I mean, I would wear a Johnny Mac t shirt. I, mean, I grew up, we all had it, you know, in Brooklyn, Johnny Mac was like a god. Right. You know, with the attitude, the yelling, that's what we all did. So you can't go <laughs> right. buy a Johnny Mac t shirt, or you can't go buy anything Serena that's kind of fun. You got to buy a Serena tennis stuff. Mm -hmm. You can't buy a photo or poster of Serena. You can't even get an autograph of Serena. Like, those are the things that get kids, what do you put up in your room? Right. You can't even put up a poster. You can't put up a signed photo. Um, there's very rarely meet and greets with a lot of these for the common, you know, where a lot of these other athletes are doing much more connecting with their uh, fans. There's mm -hmm. just, you know, there's a two weeks around the U.S. Open, and that's it. I think the court could be more fun. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, from a standpoint of, they started adding some music and everything like that, but it would be nice to have more exhibitions in some of the major cities. That's where you got to get going. That's where so many athletes, you now they started building some more tennis courts, some tennis programs, which I'm a big fan of. Mm -hmm. I would make the courts more colorful. No question. You know, I, I was I was listening to one of yeah. your pods. Um, I think it was around baseball. It was either baseball or basketball, and you were talking to someone about uh, how sports has changed. And obviously, you know, now we've got ESPN, and you can get sports basically twenty. Well, you could until the global pandemic, twenty four seven. But you, the, one of the things you said that jumped out at me is what you're talking about now was that even at baseball games or at, at NBA games, there was there was no signage. There was nothing around the court. Yeah. And tennis, you know, they, they've, they've done a little bit with that. I think Australian Open's actually done the best where they have, you know, stuff sort of changing. It's more digital now. But that's yeah. something that obviously you think is really important to growing the, the particular sport, isn't it? Just think about it. It's your sponsors that need to activate the sponsorship. Really where the promotion of a sport really comes in when you think about it is you, you get – Best in category sponsors, and they're the ones that are pushing your sport by activating their connection with that sport. When you look at the sponsors, I mean, if you're 12 years old, you're not buying a Rolex. Mm -hmm. You don't care about Chase Bank. I, I, I care about Chase Bank as an older person, right? But an 11 year old doesn't care about Chase Bank. And you think about uh, the companies that are big, high level, older directed sponsors. Very few are invested in with youth driven mm -hmm. and though they do the youth day at the u.s open but it's not enough because a real sponsorship is having a company that's activating that sponsorship for many many months before and after the tournament that comes in I, by the way i think the world team tennis mm -hmm. huge fan of it yep i think that if the players the current players are, and you see them coming and going but those are the i think more of that on right. a regular basis yeah i agree it's a more affordable play for a regular kid to be able to come it's really expensive and hard to get a U.S. Open ticket. When you think about it, that's the big gig. Now, there are some other tennis tournaments that pop around, but I'd love to see um, the players really get behind that a lot more because, you know, I always say inclusion breeds commitment. Mm -hmm. And uh, you've got to get people included more, and sponsors are a great way to do it because they can give away tickets. Uh, they can bring players in for clinics and, and high-profile players. If that's all it takes. You know, if you meet a big-time player, you meet a Serena Williams, a young 11-year-old girl, oh, it's a game-changer. Yeah, it's, uh, it's very convincing. So I think there's a lot to be done. You know, it's hard because, you know, they make a lot of money. Everybody's mm -hmm. making a lot of money. So why, you know, why spoil the apple cart? It's hard to go think of it 
and on a building standpoint and a what else standpoint. I remember I was selling off the court. Mm-hmm. You know, before when they were building Arthur Ashe, I sold the old court. Right. Uh, and we were, we were kind of hawking that and everything else. And it was like I wanted to come up with all these cool products and everything. And I was really kind of limited, to be honest with you. Who are you limited by? A by, very conservative, by the, by the, by the USDA, open. right. Yeah, Yeah. They, you know, they limit the license. They kind right. of limit the, the, your approach. And, you know, you've got to have you got to have some fun with that stuff. And, and you got to open it up. And you look at the other leagues. You don't have to go far for the new ideas. You, know, you can really just be a copycat. Interesting that My you opinion. talk about that. Yeah. No, I mean, I think the team tennis thing, I, I, you know, now I, there's some, some exhibitions being talked about, which to me are fine, you know, in this, in this yeah. time when you get some entertainment out there. But I think your, the, the, the issue for tennis is how do you make – these team events like team tennis, like the labor cup, which I've been involved with, with my brother, he's yep. a captain, I'm the coach. And, you know, it's got the top players playing and the, the access you get in those events to the players, the behind the scenes stuff, I think is really what drove the success of that. And, you know, tennis needs to find a way to get the, what I would call the average player, you know, the average player more attention because obviously the Federers and Serena's of the world and Nadal's, you know, they make, they make a fortune, which they should and they deserve. Yep. But the, yep. how do you get the average player who's really kind of struggling in many instances to, to, to make a solid living as a professional player? How does the system help yep. benefit them so that the discrepancy, to me, the discrepancy in tennis is too big. The top players make too much yep. in comparison to the 50 to 100, 150 ranked player. I think it needs better licensing when you think about it. If I asked you to name some 500 home run hitters, you tell me. If I asked you to name the top quarterbacks in the NFL history, you tell me. If I asked you to tell me the, high, the top five highest scoring NBA players, or who led the NBA of all time assists, you tell me. Mm-hmm. you got to get a little bit stature to, to really ensure the greatness mm. also, to make it a little bit wider and bigger. Tennis needs to figure out, is it just grand slams that make you great, mm. or is it just wins? Is it just tournament wins? So, you know, imagine if, you know, that, that's, I think that's the problem. Like, only people are looking at if you're ranked number one, two, or three. But there's other greatness going on within the game that you now need to kind of broadcast better, Mm-hmm. And put in some kind of the stats. You know, people are so number driven. Right. You got to try to create these clubs of you know who are the greatest doubles champions, who are the who are, who are the greatest servers of all time. You know that kind of thing. So and you re- so you really also people, right. So you really think that tennis needs to kind of l- almost look back at its at its all time greats and market them a little bit better to get that sort of uh, enthusiasm for <clears throat> for the history of the game as well. There's no question. Mm-hmm. It's your history. When you get it straightened out, it enables you to move forward with your future. If you don't have your history and you don't have your past organized, your future never gets that way. And baseball doesn't even deserve the future it's getting, frankly. But because it's organized and its past has come together in such a really immense way, the way we feel about baseball in its golden years, it just gives this incredible push to the future. When you think about what baseball, when you get into the Mickey Mantles, the Musicals, the Ted Williams, I mean, God, that's, that's like... Those are like angels. Those are gods. Right. I mean, but, you know, you need to rattle off tennis players like that. If there are some great ones, mm-hmm. many that came before. And if you get that straightened out, you know, when you get your past straight, you know, enables you to kind of move on to your future. And I think tennis needs to do that. And it's work. It takes work. It mm-hmm. doesn't always come to the bottom line. Sometimes the licensing at the beginning, I remember we were just getting into licensing in the early 90s. It's not like licensing has been going on for hundreds of years. 
Mm -hmm. It all started in the mid-90s pretty much with Michael Jordan. It takes work. You know, you got to work retailers, work websites. You know, you got to create a photo uh, website with all the greatest tennis players and be able to go work deals out with the tennis players to create tennis posters of the past and the current. It takes work, and it's not crazy guarantees and profitable at the beginning, but it, it takes shape, and it all adds to the marketing of the game, in my opinion. I'm a little biased right. with the, you know, the way I look at it, but I know that stuff is very meaningful. Oh, no, the casual fan. I mean, the, the and, and the tennis fan loves loves its history. So that's um, that's some yeah. great great advice for an, any tennis people listening in. Where do you see just sports in general headed now? Because I know you're involved, you know, day to day in what you're doing, yeah. and with a lot of people that are sports fans, that's sort of still you know a lot of what Brandon Steiner does, right? And so, where do you see it going? Um, in the future now for the short term, obviously, as we get through this pandemic and then once, uh, hopefully, in the not-too-distant future, we all come out of it. I see two things, you know, and, and one of them is I've been kind of on this for a while, but I'm actually beginning to think that it may happen. I think the huge growth in women's sports, huge. And, you know, I think we're going to live to see in the next maybe five or ten years where the women's sports will be just as big as the men's. Wow. Um, we're seeing, mm-hmm. And the reason is is because we're seeing, like when I grew up, like my wife, she, she didn't play sports. A few mm-hmm. women played sports. They were tomboys. and it, it, Every girl played sports now. Soccer, basketball, tennis, everybody's you know, playing sports. And actually women are now even playing sports in some cases more than the guys. Mm-hmm. So they're knowledgeable. You go to a game. Or we have two passengers go to a game. I used to go to a game, every game I go to, and I go to about 80 games a year. Mo- most, mostly sports. baseball or all sports? Football? No, everything, everything I can go to. Okay. I'm a lunatic because that's how I can learn, and that's right. I try to get a feel for people. Mm-hmm. I remember doing this in the 90s, and maybe you'd see maybe 10% women, and usually they'd be with a guy. Now, no, 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 not so fast. You see, first of all, it's probably a 60-40 or almost close to 50-50 mm-hmm. with women and men. And you see women with women not necessarily going with guys or looking for guys, and they know the game. I'm sitting next to some women, and they're like, you think he's going to throw a cutter? And you believe he missed that block? <laughs> they, they, they know the game now, right? Yeah, yeah. oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because I remember when I got in the business, I was doing like one-on-ones, you know, uh-huh. football, football, you know, and that kind of thing. That's, that's over. So at some point now, these women are going to be more and more. They're already starting to see more women decision makers, more women CEOs. And we all know that women have incredible – amount of power in the buying anyway. Mm-hmm. So I think we're going to see a huge shift. And I think watching women's sports is great. I mean, it's actually more fundamentally sound when I watch women's basketball and women's soccer. Mm-hmm. It's more realistic to me in watching. My, my wife thinks I'm crazy. But you, I'm can, like, you can relate to it more because they're, yeah. they're, yeah, right, they're not they're not. So skying, I think women's sports yeah. has got a huge growth opportunity. And what, um, a, what an opportunity. Right, what an opportunity for yeah. tennis, right? Because tennis is the sport where men yeah. and women essentially play on, on an equal playing yeah. field when it comes to prize so money. I think tennis will lead yeah. the way. The second thing I see is I see a lot of athletes, which was not really true, they're becoming entities in themselves, much more now so in a much wider way. It's not just like one, a LeBron or a Serena or a, many, many players are their own entities in themselves, more now than ever. And they don't need the team in the league to be a big name. Mm-hmm. They now have control of their self-promotion, of their brand. And the owners and the teams can't control it as much because of social media, because of the ability to communicate online. Players could take their own uh, marketing and their own business in their own hands. And that's a big game changer. And it's opened it up where if you went to Milwaukee, that was like a death sentence. Uh-uh. You could play anywhere. It doesn't matter. If you go do the work, 
you do the work online, you build your brand, you put the right people around you. And I think that you're going to see much, much more of that, very similar to how you see entertainment. You're going to see the athletes now finally falling into more of an entertainment bracket than just a sports celebrity bracket. Yeah, and probably even more so now that we're, yeah, we're, we're yeah. all learning how to, you know, I learned how to do this podcast from my basement where you and I, you know, you've been telling me about doing yep. your Zoom webinars. I've been doing those for the kids at our tennis academy. I know you've been working on some of those uh, recently, especially now when starting your so your new venture. So tell me a little bit about that and how that's going. What's amazing is when I came out with this about a month ago, my people were like, you know, this is not going to work. It's a sensitive time. I'm sensitive for what? Mm-hmm. I'm not in my house because I'm scared. I'm in my house because I'm smart and I want to be safe. Mm-hmm. Nobody's, in, nobody's at the end of the day, everybody's looking to do business. Everybody wants to go forward. So it took a few weeks for everybody to kind of get a grip on the fact that going forward is going to be probably being home a lot more. So I've come up with this idea of having celebrities and athletes doing these Zoom conferences because it's important to be in touch with your clients and customers. So I had like this money manager who, when the market was down a little bit a month ago, he wanted to go get to everybody. It was hard because everybody was a little bit panicked. Mm-hmm. The market was down. I said, look, go get a big name athlete. Let's get on the phone with your top 25 clients. You'll be able to do a state of the union at the same time. You'll have a little fun. You'll talk about the state of sports and whatever. Right. It was a home run. And you mm. end up booking like five more. So now we're working with a whole bunch of big companies. We're doing a charity day online. We have four or five different celebrities helping raise money for charity. And, and then some of the money is going to those players' charities. We're doing a, 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 a regional sales conference. You know, there's a whole bunch of things. And instead of just the CEO, who's not necessarily always her, he or she used to kind of doing these on a computer in their home thing, using a couple of celebrities is breaking it up and making it a little more fun, taking a little pressure off some of these CEOs and CMOs that are doing these conferences. And it's been really working well. Amazing. That's my main game. And you know, yeah. the other thing is a lot of people are home organizing, throwing things out. So a lot of people <laughs> go to collectible exchange. Right. We've seen, I think we have over 50,000 items up there. We just started, uh, in December, and there's over 50,000 items up on the site already. So we're seeing a lot of people say, you know, maybe I don't need all these autographed items and these collectibles, and we see a lot of people going online selling stuff. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that's good for that's good for your business. Yeah. And uh, you, you, I, I do have to tell everybody that uh, you and I met recently um, through my longtime agent, Sandy Montag, who's I know is a good friend, of another Syracuse guy. You guys have both uh, both made it big and. You've been nice enough to uh, allow me periodically with my daughter, who's a tennis player, who's an athlete, to use your tennis court. You've got quite, quite the pad. They're coming from where you came from in Brooklyn, Brandon. Um, you should be very, very proud of your, your p- pad up there. I know you, it's got sports everywhere. So what, one day when this whole thing passes, I want to, cause I've seen your basketball court just from outside, yeah. but I want to come in yeah. and check that out. But I very much appreciate you letting me use your tennis court yeah. from time to time. Well, it's funny because all well, the parks are closed and we don't use our tennis court regularly. My kids are all uh, in different parts of the country. So, you know, no problem using it. And, you know, it's funny growing up, I had one goal actually two mm-hmm. one is i just wanted to have a hoop in my drive because <laughs> you know growing up i you know right. i didn't have really a backyard i lived over a black kosher butcher in king's highway in brooklyn and you know i did i i just wanted a hoop so the, this is only the second house i've ever lived in and you mm. know to have a full court indoor court and an outdoor court is i don't really care about the rest of the house it's I incredible my favorite yeah. thing and and you know at the end of the day when i now that i've had two months of downtime but sometimes you don't even realize like wow i can't believe it's kind of big. Mm. 
But you don't realize like how grateful and how lucky I am to live as poor as I did in a little 400 square foot apartment over a butcher with two brothers and you know one small bathroom that my closet's bigger than now. And then living like this, it's kind of just it's a really good twist. And it does put things in perspective, you know, the gratitude you have to have at this time. Because a lot of us have a lot more than you probably need and ever expected. And you should be grateful for the job and the money and the things we have. And then for the people that don't, it's a good time now to try to reach out and show your act of kindness. And mm-hmm. do something nice when it doesn't quite have enough. And I try to do that every morning for the last 15 years. I always try to do some act of kindness uh, for someone that maybe doesn't have what they need. And it's just a great feeling. It's probably the most fun thing that I do every day in business is doing something for someone that doesn't even know me. And I don't know, don't need anything from because, you know, helping people, a lot of times people think it's a burden, but really it's an opportunity uh, that will lead you to share joy. And unfortunately, a lot of people wait till they're much older to do it, but you don't need a lot of money or a lot to do those acts of kindness. And I'm hoping that this period of time pushes people to do more of that because when you think about whoever thought an act of kindness was like going into the grocery store and stocking groceries. Right, right. Putting yourself at rest, right? So, you know, you you see how we are when we're doing good things, which is more for the common good than your your individual good. And that's really the blessing. That's why I think we're all put here. And one of the things I talked about in my last book is it's okay for the money grab. I like the money grab. I like making money. But Mm -hmm. the real true joy is in some of these other departments that you can participate in while you're doing the money grab. And you shouldn't uh, shortcut it. Well, well, now that I've gotten to know you a little better and, and studied your history, it's uh, pretty clear that you've earned it every step of the way. And you've, uh, it's been amazing to see what you've been able to do. And I know what you're going to continue to do. The last thing I want to ask you before I let you go, and you've given me a, a huge amount of time, and thank you for that, is you told me the other day when we were uh, you know, finishing playing some tennis on your court, you had a very interesting comment to me and I think to our listeners as well, which was you said that you, you think that this generation of teenage kids, because obviously you, you keep your finger on the pulse, as you said, of going to games and seeing where, you know, the, the world is trending, what people are interested in. But you said you thought that teenagers right now are maybe more creative and, and more into changing the world than you've seen in many, many years. Why do you say that? Well, the generation Z, I mean, I, I've always loved working with young kids, uh, interns, and, and now I do reverse mentoring. So, you know, I mentor a lot of kids, and I'm great, great to do it, and I have young kids mentor me. But what I see now is, and, and what happened with the millennials, not that, I mean, every generation, I have kids that were lazy, that were not doing anything, and every generation has its good and its bad parts to it. What I see in the generation Z is, and what, what happened with the millennials, they kind of had all this social media and these phones and mm-hmm. It kind of gave them a lot of stuff way too quick, too early, and they kind of got caught up in it. The Generation Z are not that, they're not that infatuated with all this stuff. Mm-hmm. They, they, they grew up with it. It's not a big deal then. They're, a big deal to them is how they're going to improve that, how they could put that in, into better use. They've been through that, and, that 2006 flood that we had with the uh, economy, and now this. They're ready to grind. They're, mm-hmm. and, and they also understand the responsibility that we're counting on them to probably fix this planet. Uh, they talk about it regularly. They won't buy anything unless there's a company that's doing some good with some of the profits. And mm-hmm. it's not just some put a garbage can on the corner or give out a couple of gift pairs of shoes. That they want real do-goods. They want honest, authentic do-goods, and they expect it. 
and it's, it's, it's equally as important to making money. The, the young kids, they want to make money. They want to be successful. I'm seeing incredible amounts of entrepreneurship in 13-year-olds, 15-year-olds, mm. you know, kids that want to change it, do better, that are looking for the gaps in, in the way we do things in this country and make it better. But they also know the social responsibility, and they're not afraid to work for it. They're not looking at, you know, I would say if you have a shock box, in your game, mm-hmm. if you have a shot clock in your office, you're headed to mediocrity. <laughs> there should be no right. shot clock in your game. Interesting. These kids have no shot clock. Amazing. None. Wow. They're ready to work 24-7. These kids are calling me at 1 in the morning. Mm-hmm. They're coming over my house at 10 at night. They got questions. Um, they're relentless. And, and I haven't seen that kind of relentless in such a wide group. You know, I used to go speak at high schools. I just stopped because the kids would just stop paying attention. You go to a high school now, the kids don't leave the room. They won't let me leave. Just a different change of what's going on in the spirit of uh, some of our youth in this Generation Z uh, group, and I'm very excited about uh, what's now like you know first, second year college kids, uh, high school kids. It's really impressive, and I'm excited to hand over the baton to them uh, mm-hmm. in all in all aspects. I, I feel really confident they're going to actually fix maybe what we kind of maybe broke. Well, your relentlessness, uh, Brandon, is uh, infectious. So keep it up, and uh, thank you for taking the time to do this. And I know your jump shot is pretty solid. I've heard you talk about that as a kid, as a five-seven Jewish kid growing up in Brooklyn. But uh, I need to see your forehand soon. You've been letting me use your court, and uh, when the weather yeah, perks up, I need a lot of work, man. You, I need you, a lot of help. You and me out there on the tennis court. I appreciate you, and thanks for doing the pod and having me. And for everybody out there, stay safe, stay home, and um, be kind. It's important. You got it. I'll see you later. I'll see you on the courts. Brandon Steiner, ladies and gentlemen. You got it. Bye-bye. Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe is powered by Mudhouse Media.